section seventy one of the united states this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox dot org the world story volume thirteen the united states edited by eva march tappan section seventy one the merrimac and the monitor eighteen sixty two by john s wise the building of the ironclad afterwards famous all over the world as the virginia or the merrimac was a subject of daily conversation in our household from the time the gosport navy yard was burned and abandoned by the union troops in april eighteen sixty one my father during his service in congress was for some years upon the committee on naval affairs his acquaintance with naval officers resulting from that fact and from his long residence at rio de janeiro was unusually widespread commodore james barron was one of his constituents and warm friends commodore barron was the gallant but unfortunate officer who killed decatur in a duel and was himself severely wounded besides other contributions of value to the navy he conceived the idea of an impregnable steam propeller armed with a pyramidal beak and a terrapin shaped back at an acute angle to the line of projectiles fired from its own level he called it a marine catapulta and had complete models plans and descriptions which he exhibited to the naval committee in the effort to have a ship constructed on these lines he made little impression however for in those days steam navigation had attained no very great success much less the utilization of iron upon ships he subsequently presented the model to my father who had also a large number of models of other vessels in our rummaging about the place we boys found these models in some old boxes and took them down to our mill-pond where we anchored them as part of our miniature fleet the barren model and one constructed by lieutenant williamson of the navy were the most conspicuous making quite a proud addition to our naval display this was in eighteen sixty we also possessed a brass cannon about eighteen inches long which had been cast for us by a convict in the virginia penitentiary that cannon was stamped with the words union and constitution but its use by its possessors was most lawless modelling slugs for it by pouring melted lead into holes made by sticking our rammer in the sand we were constantly firing these slugs to the great peril of everybody in the vicinity one of our neighbors a captain johnson an old seaman living about a mile down the creek had a flock of geese and from one of his voyages in indian seas he had brought back six coolie boys who were probably apprenticed to him these coolies were passionately fond of the water and were almost constantly in sight bathing or rowing or sailing a felucca rigged boat 
after trying the range of our gun upon captain johnson's geese who began to practise upon the coolies on a certain evening captain johnson appeared in full marine rig at our landing rowed by his six coolies and announcing to our father the sport in which we had been engaged gave notice that he had a gun of his own with which if we did not promptly cease our diversion he would open a return fire my father who was a friend of captain johnson and indignant at our reckless misconduct gave us all a but half hour in consequence of this visit we were summoned before him and after considerable discussion concerning the punishment we should receive were marched in a body to the landing and made to apologize to the coolies who grinned and showed their teeth after that we were good friends of the coolies and our future operations with the gun were confined to the mill-pond on the opposite side of the farm in our new field it promptly occurred to us as it would to most boys that the best targets for our cannon were the models of the ironclads anchored out in the pond unfortunately they had no iron upon them and such was the precision we had acquired in our practice upon johnson's geese and coolies that in a few days the models of commodore barron and lieutenant williamson were riddled and ignominiously disappeared they were resting in the mud at the bottom of our mill-pond when the war broke out the following spring after visiting the navy yard and seeing the partially burned merrimac my father became enthusiastic upon the subject of raising her and building upon her frame an ironclad ship on the lines of commodore barron's model imbued with this idea he instituted rigorous inquiries for the model but for reasons which may well be understood none of us boys aided him much in the search failing to find his model he wrote to general lee who was then commander-in-chief of the virginia forces an elaborate description of commodore barron's invention and made rough drawings urging the use of the merrimac for carrying out the design he always believed and declared that this was the first suggestion which led to the building of the virginia we all knew that an ironclad ship was being built and from time to time informed ourselves of the progress made and great things were expected from her so deep was my father's interest in her that he several times visited the navy yard to inspect her he repeatedly expressed the opinion that she was being built to draw too much water and that her beak or ramming prow was improperly constructed in this that it was horizontal at the top and sloped upward from the bottom whereas it should have been horizontal on the bottom and made to slope downward to a point when the ship was launched he was indignant because the lower edge or eaves of her armor-clad covering stood several feet out of the water and it was necessary to ballast her heavily to bring her sheathing below the water-line this increased her draught to eighteen feet which was as he declared entirely unnecessary he insisted that this condition was due to the failure of the naval architects in calculating the water which she would draw when sheathed with iron to deduct from the weight of her sheathing the weight of masts spars rigging and sails which were dispensed with admiral buchanan commodore forrest captain brooke and all the prominent naval men connected with the norfolk navy yard were personal and warm friends of my father he did not hesitate to express his views concerning these things but they as professional men generally do 
made light of the criticisms of a layman nevertheless i think that many naval authorities are now disposed to admit that the chief reason why the virginia did not triumph completely over the monitor was her great draught of water the loss of her prow and the twisting of her stem in ramming the cumberland after the disaster of roanoke island my father returned to his home on sick leave where for some time his life was in danger from pneumonia aggravated by exposure on the retreat from roanoke island our house was visited almost daily during this period by distinguished military and naval officers from the city who came to express their interest and sympathy it was before the day of steam launches and the appearance of the distinguished officers and of the naval boats which came up manned by a dozen oarsmen whose stroke fell as that of one man was very striking during these visits they diverted my father with full descriptions of the progress made in arming and equipping the virginia and we were advised that the time of her completion and the attack upon the vessels in hampton roads was rapidly approaching there was dear old commodore forrest tall dignified and with a face as sweet as that of a woman surmounted by a great shock of white hair like the mane of a royal beast and captain buchanan far less striking in appearance quiet kindly and as unpretentious as a country farmer but with an eye which age had not dimmed and which even then was filled with the light of battle they were both old men commodore forrest was sixty-five and captain buchanan sixty-two there was also captain brooke taciturn and dreamy and lieutenant catesby jones a quiet man of forty and lieutenant minor young quick and fidgety as a wren and all the rest of them mingling with us simply and unostentatiously as if unconscious that the issues of one of the greatest struggles the world ever witnessed were committed to their keeping and that they were to emerge from it with names which will be remembered as long as the records of naval warfare are preserved almost daily we boys went to norfolk for the mail or on some domestic mission we preferred our boat and seldom failed before we left norfolk harbour to stand over toward the gosport navy yard and sail around and take a look at the merrimac such we called her for we had never become accustomed to the new name virginia my father was now convalescent and secured the promise that he would be advised when the ship was ready to sail for the attack on march seventh he received a note from commodore forrest or one of those who knew advising him that the attack would be made upon the following day he consented that my brother richard and myself should accompany him and the next morning the horses which now had been well fed and rested for a month at home were saddled and ready for us at the door when we reached the city the merrimac accompanied by two little gunboats the beaufort and the raleigh had already passed out and all three were below fort norfolk the waterway is more circuitous than that by land we were sure we should reach sewell's point the most favourable position for observing the conflict before the slow-moving vessels in this we were correct after a sharp gallop of eight miles we rode out upon the sandy hills facing hampton roads at sewell's point the scene was truly inspiring hampton roads is as beautiful a sheet of water as any on the face of the globe it is formed by the confluence of the james and the nansemond and the elizabeth rivers the james enters it from the west the nansman from the south and the elizabeth from the east the tides in the roads run north and south and pass to and from the chesapeake bay through 
a narrow entrance at the north between old point comfort and willoughby's spit midway between these is the fort then known as riprap's the proper name of which was fort calhoun now changed to fort wool on the eastern side of the roads the confederates had fortified two points sewell's point where we were and lambert's point at the mouth of the elizabeth on the southern side between the mouths of the elizabeth and nansman rivers were the confederate fortifications on craney island on the western side at the entrance to the roads is fortress monroe from there the land runs westwardly to hampton thence southwardly to newport news which marks the entrance of the james river the roads are about four miles in width and seven in length from where we stood looking north fortress monroe and the riprap's were perhaps four miles away looking westward across the roads newport news was five miles away and looking south lambert's point and craney island were plainly visible three miles off upon the battlements of fortress monroe and the riprap's great numbers of union troops could be seen through field-glasses and we could also make out the camps and fortifications of the enemy at newport news and between that point and hampton while our own people lined the shores and crowded the ramparts at craney island and lambert's point anchored in the roads were a great number of vessels of every description steam and sail from the smallest tugs and sloops to the largest transports and warships rumors of the attack had brought down to sewell's point a number of civilians and the whole appearance of the scene was suggestive of the greatest performance ever given in the largest theatre ever seen the merrimac and her attendants had passed craney island and were coming down the channel east of craney island light when we arrived as she passed our fortifications she was saluted and cheered and returned the salutes from the way in which she was shaping her course when first seen it looked to the uninitiated as if she proposed to sail directly upon the riprap's such hurrying and scurrying was seen among the non-combatant craft in the roads as was never witnessed before from great three-masters and double-deck steamers to little tugs and sailboats all weighed or slipped anchor and made sail or steam for fortress monroe except three dauntless war vessels two steamers the minnesota and the roanoke and one sailing vessel the st lawrence whose duty called them in the opposite direction a long tongue of shoal running out from craney island compelled the merrimac to go below sewell's point before she struck the main channel then she swung into it and pointed westward showing her destination for she headed straight for newport news where the masts and spars of the congress and the cumberland were plainly visible it was now past midday the merrimac on her new course was nearly stern to us and grew smaller and smaller as she followed the south channel to newport news the three united states vessels minnesota roanoke and st lawrence started after her by what is known as the north channel it was a bitter disappointment to us that the battle was to be waged so far away but the ships and their movements were still in view the sun was shining and a fresh march breeze would we thought blow away the smoke it seemed an eternity before the first gun was fired the merrimac cumberland and congress were nearly ranged in our line of vision the merrimac appeared to us as if she was almost in contact with the nearest of the two vessels captain buchanan states in his report that he was within less than a mile of the cumberland when he commenced the engagement by a shot at her from his bow gun we saw a great puff of smoke roll up and float off from the merrimac a moment later the flashes of broadsides and tremendous rolls of smoke from the congress the cumberland the batteries on shore 
and the union gunboats and then came the thunderous sounds following each other in the same order in which we had seen the smoke the engagement had begun it was a time of supreme excitement and supreme suspense for the details we who had no glasses were dependent upon those who had she has passed the congress exclaimed an officer who was straining forward trying to descry the positions of the ships through the smoke which now enveloped the point of newport news and the water beyond bang crash roar went the guns single shots and broadsides making all the noise that any boy could wish she is heading direct for the cumberland shouted another between the thunders of the broadsides she has rammed the cumberland was announced fifteen minutes after the first gun was heard and our people gave three cheers our teeth chattering with excitement we waited the next announcement it soon came the cumberland is sinking and again we cheered then came an ominous lull the meaning of which we did not know those watching through the glasses notified us that three steamers were in sight standing down james river and we knew it was commander tucker with the patrick henry jamestown and teaser think of it the jamestown which but four years ago had brought the remains of president monroe to richmond with the new york seventh regiment on that visit of fraternity and goodwill here she was armed as a war vessel fighting those very men once more the cannon belched and thundered this time what we saw and heard was alarming the merrimac is running up the river away from the congress and other vessels she is fighting the shore batteries as she goes it looked indeed as if she were disabled in some way again a lull and anxious waiting the merrimac is turning around and coming back again the roar of a hot engagement with the forts another lull and another heavy roll she is back pounding the congress and raking her fore and aft the congress is aground again our people went wild with enthusiasm poor fellows on the congress when the merrimac withdrew and passed upstream it was only to gain deep water in order to wind her for where she had rammed the cumberland her keel was in the mud and she could not be put about the fearless sailors on the congress deluded by the appearance of retreat believed that she had hauled off and leaving their guns gave three cheers having brought his ship around into position to attack the congress captain buchanan now came back at her and as he approached blew up a transport alongside the wharf sunk one schooner captured another and proceeded to rake the congress where she had run ashore in shoal water describing this stage of the fight captain buchanan says in his report the carnage havoc and dismay caused by our fire compelled them to haul down their colours and to hoist a white flag at their gaff and half-mast and another at the main the crew instantly took to their boats and landed our fire immediately ceased and a signal was made for the beaufort to come within hail he then ordered lieutenant commander parker to take possession of the congress secure the officers as prisoners allow the crew to land and burn the ship this captain parker did receiving her flag and surrender from commander smith and lieutenant pendergrast with the side-arms of those officers they delivered themselves as prisoners of war on board the beaufort and afterwards being permitted at their own request to return to the ship to assist in removing the wounded never returned the beaufort and raleigh while alongside the congress after her surrender and while she had two white flags flying were subjected to a heavy fire from the shore and from the congress and withdrew without setting her afire after losing several valuable officers and men the lieutenant minor was sent to burn the ship which he was fired upon and severely wounded his boat was recalled and captain buchanan ordered the congress to be destroyed by hot shot and incendiary shell by this time the ships from old point opened fire upon the merrimac 
the minnesota grounded in the north channel the shoalness of the water prevented the near approach of the merrimac the roanoke and st lawrence warned by the fate of the cumberland and congress retired under the guns of fortress monroe the merrimac pounded away at the grounded minnesota until the pilots warned her commander that it was no longer safe to remain in that position then returning by the south channel she had an opportunity to open again upon the minnesota although the shallow water was between the two and afterwards upon the st lawrence which responded with several broadsides it was too tantalizing to see these vessels which in deep water would have been completely at her mercy protected from her assaults by the shoals by this time it was dark and the merrimac anchored off sewell's point the western sky was illuminated with the burning congress her loaded guns were successively discharged as the flames reached them until a few minutes past midnight her magazine exploded with a tremendous report thus ended the first day's doings of the merrimac soon after she anchored some of her officers came ashore and we who had been waiting all day and who had now decided to remain all night in order to see the next day's operations were gratified with a full and graphic description of the fighting captain buchanan lieutenant minor and the other wounded were sent to norfolk having been tendered the hospitality of sewell's point by some of the officers our party remained and were lulled to sleep by the firing of the guns of the burning congress and rudely aroused about midnight by the tremendous explosion of her magazine up betimes in the morning we saw the minnesota still ashore she was nearly in line with us and about a mile nearer to us than newport news a tug was beside her and a very odd-looking iron battery we expected great things from this day's operations about eight o'clock the merrimac ran down to engage them firing at the minnesota and occasionally at the iron battery she was now under command of lieutenant jones we confidently expected her to be able to get very near to the minnesota but in this the pilots were mistaken when about a mile from the frigate she ran ashore and was some time backing before she got afloat her great lengthened draught rendered it difficult to work her notwithstanding these delays she succeeded in damaging the minnesota seriously and in blowing up the tugboat dragon lying alongside her while this was going on the iron battery which looked like a cheese-box floating on a shingle moved out from behind the frigate and advanced to meet the merrimac the disparity in size between the two was remarkable we could not doubt that the merrimac would either by shot or by ramming make short work of the cheese-box but as time wore on we began to realize that the newcomer was a tough customer her turret resisted the shells of the merrimac and not only was she speedier but her draught was so much less than that of her antagonist that she could run off into shallow water and prevent the merrimac from ramming her there was no lack of pluck shown by either vessel the little monitor came right up and laid herself alongside as if she had been a giant she was quicker in every way than her antagonist and presented the appearance of a saucy kingbird pecking at a very large and very black crow the first shot fired by the merrimac missed the monitor which was a novel experience for the gunners who had been riddling the hulls of frigates then again when the eleven-inch solid shot struck the casemates knocking the men of the merrimac down and leaving them dazed and bleeding at the nose from the tremendous impact they realized that the cheese-box was loaded as none of the other vessels had been neither vessel could penetrate the armor of the other both tried ramming unsuccessfully the monitor had not mass sufficient to injure the merrimac the merrimac only gave the monitor a glancing ram weakened by the monitor's superior speed and then the monitor ran off into shallow water 
safe from pursuit twice we thought the merrimac had won the fight on the first occasion the monitor went out of action it seems to replenish the ammunition in the turret it being impossible to use the scuttle by which ammunition was passed unless the turret was stationary and in a certain position the second occasion was about eleven o'clock when a shell from the merrimac struck the monitor's pilot-house and seemed to have penetrated the ship she drifted off aimlessly towards shoal water her guns were silent and the people on board the minnesota gave up hope and prepared to burn her this was when lieutenant warden commander of the monitor was blinded and the steersmen stunned their position was so isolated that no one knew their condition for some minutes then lieutenant green discovered it took command and brought the vessel back into action shortly afterwards lieutenant jones withdrew the merrimac in his report of the action he said the pilots declaring that we could get no nearer the minnesota and believing her to be entirely disabled and the monitor having run into shoal water which prevented our doing her any further injury we ceased firing at twelve o'clock and proceeded to norfolk the stem is twisted and the ship leaks we have lost the prow starboard anchor and all the boats the armor is somewhat damaged the steam-pipe and smoke-stack both riddled the muzzles of two of the guns shot away when from the shore we saw the merrimac haul off and head for norfolk we could not credit the evidence of our own senses ah we thought dear old buchanan would never have done it lieutenant jones was afterwards fully justified by his superiors but it did seem to us that he ought to have stayed there until he drove the monitor away beside the reasons assigned above lieutenant jones declared that it was necessary to leave when he did in order to cross the elizabeth river bar the inconclusive result of that fight has left to endless discussion among naval men the question which was the better ship of the two it is not within the scope of this work to investigate that problem it is certain that up to the time the monitor appeared the merrimac seemed irresistible and that but for the presence of the monitor she would have made short work of the minnesota it is equally certain that the monitor performed her task of defence it is said she was anxious to renew the fight but two weeks later the merrimac went down into deep water where the monitor was lying under the guns of fortress monroe and tried to coax her out but she would not come and even permitted the jamestown and beaufort to sail up to hampton and capture two schooners laden with hay the truth is that if the merrimac could have induced the monitor to meet her in deep water she would easily have rammed and sunk her on our ride back to the city my father while greatly elated at what had been done continued to deplore the errors of construction in the merrimac which the two days fighting had made all the more manifest but we boys thought she had earned glory enough and joined the others in the general jubilation everybody in norfolk knew the officers and men on board our ships many of them were natives of the town when they were granted to relief they were given a triumphal reception some time since i read an account of the dutch admiral de ruder who the day after his four days battle with the english fleet was seen in his yard in his shirt-sleeves with a basket on his arm feeding his hens and sweeping out his cabin it reminded me of the simple lives and unpretentious behaviour of those splendid fellows who handled the merrimac yesterday they revolutionized the naval warfare of the world to-day they were walking about the streets of norfolk or sitting at their firesides as if unaware that fame was trumpeting their names to the ends of the earth end of section seventy one this recording is in the public domain